like to have you turn, if you will, to John chapter 15 this morning. John chapter 15. Now, the last couple of Sundays, we have focused our attention on the seventh I Am statement of Jesus, which is the I Am statement, I am the true vine. And later on, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. And we spend a considerable amount of time focusing our attention upon how the vine and the branch, the vine has a, has a, uh, uh, really a very singular purpose, and that is to bear fruit. Anything else is... is is not possible. This, it, it is simply there to bear fruit. That's its purpose. So Jesus talks about that to his disciples as they are on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. He says to his disciples, you are the branches. We talked about how branches that may not be bearing fruit would be pruned, trimmed, and really, if they're separated from the vine, of course, those will be burned. But the ones that are connected to the vine, we talked about that last week. Connected to the vine, the Lord will prune and he'll clean and he'll purge so that it will bear more fruit. Or that in some cases, that it'll bear fruit, period. <laughs> but as we get into this next section, He focuses his attention on something that most of us love to hear. How much the Lord loves us. But there's something about that that we need to also realize there's some deeper things about that. And so Jesus continues on and he says in verse 9, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit, that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he may give it you. These things I command you, that ye love one another. Now, <clears throat> the key word in our previous study 
of the things that Jesus said to his disciples on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane and eventually to the cross was the word abide. Abide in me. Dwell in me. Remain in me. Continue in me. Endure in me. He is the vine, we are the branches. The true branches that abide in the vine will fulfill the purpose of the branches. And as I said, it is to bear fruit. Jesus calls us then to an abiding life. A life that will bear fruit to the glory of the vine dresser who is God the Father. Now, the relationship between the vine and the branches is natural, but with supernatural implications. The relationship, and this is what we want to focus on here for just a moment. The relationship between the vine and the branches is natural, but it comes with supernatural implications because that relationship must be cultivated in the walk of the believer. The relationship between the branches and the vine must be cultivated in the walk of the believer. In other words, to abide in Christ demands worship. It demands prayer and sacrifice and service and study and meditation in the Word of God. You abide in Christ to the full extent of that understanding of that Word. You are dwelling with Christ. You are remaining and continuing in Christ. And what is it that would keep us from appreciating that particular relationship. That is, by the way, very personal and very intimate as God and Christ has intended for us. The fact of the matter is that this is to be a highly joyful experience. The relationship between the vine and the branches, the relationship between our God and our Christ and us is to be a joyful experience. I oftentimes wonder what is in the mind of people that may come to church. And this is none of you, of course. Not one of you. But, you know, people that come here, oh, i got to come here. i got to go to, I got to church. i got to go to a church. i got to go worship the Lord. You know. Where would you get that idea that it's such a hard thing to do? I can't wait to get started in worshiping the Lord. Can't wait to get started in rejoicing in the fact that he loves us with an everlasting love and express to him, thank you for that, because, I mean, that's why we're here. At least part of the reason why we're here. It is to be a highly joyful experience. Even when we go through trials, even when we go through the storms of this life and the and the floodgates are open, and we're just, you know, that's the time to praise God. Because He's not going to leave us through the storm. When we begin to cultivate a richer and a deeper communion and fellowship with our Lord Jesus Christ, why would we even desire for a moment to return to a shallow and superficial life of a thoughtless, inconsiderate, and uncaring Christian? And folks, that's, what's ha that's what happens to the heart of a person who does not appreciate abiding in Christ. 
We may, be, we may have been thoughtful at one moment, but we turn, our way, we turn ourselves away from God and we become thoughtless of the things of God. We may have begun with a heart of consideration and compassion for others, but sometimes when we focus on ourselves rather than upon the Lord in a, uh, and we walk away from this abiding relationship, because folks, we do. And when we do, we become inconsiderate because we're only thinking about ourselves. Remember what Jesus said about bearing fruit. You, you can't bear fruit for yourselves. Israel tried that. It didn't work. They, the, the, you know, the branches and the trees didn't bear fruit for themselves. They eat it. Fruit is for others. And then from going from a caring person to an uncaring person, how did that happen? It happens when we move away from abiding. Or we consider that abiding isn't that important. I'll tell you this, it is important to Jesus. Because when he says, abide in me and I in you, he says, that's a forever thing. That's a forever thing. The key, of, the key word of abiding then progresses to another key word. And that is the word abounding. In other words, the abiding life in Christ is the abounding life in Christ. And we know this because of what he says about fruit. He says to his disciples and to us, bear fruit, bear more fruit, and bear much fruit. That was a test. You'll get your grades on the way out. Bear fruit, bear more fruit, bear much fruit. And of course, we cannot do that without Jesus. And that's because he said so himself. Without me, you can do nothing. And it isn't just, by the way, it isn't just about the quantity of fruit that we bear. I mean, you know, think about this for a moment. There, there are people, you know, and they're good, well-meaning people in the church, you know, that, that <clears throat> they, they, they think that it's important to get notches on their belt for how many people they lead to Jesus Christ. Look at all these notches on my bell for all the people I've led to Jesus Christ. You did it all by yourself. Without me, you can do nothing. Besides, we should be giving the glory to him, not to ourselves. Every crown that we are going to bear before the Lord in heaven, we're going to cast at his feet anyway. Right? So it isn't just about the quantity of fruit that we bear. It is about the quality of that fruit that matters in abounding. I want you to look at it this way. The more that we abide in Christ, the more fruit we bear. The more fruit we bear, the more the vine dresser, who is the Father, prunes us. I bet you didn't think I was going to say that. The more the vine dresser prunes us, and purges us, and cleanses us. And then we're thinking, that's the stuff that hurts. Yeah, it is. But just hang on. 
It's all so that the quality of the fruit that we bear will keep up with the quantity of the fruit that we bear. The Father is not just glorified with a bigger crop. He's glorified with a better crop. May I say he's glorified with a bigger and better crop. So consider just three examples that the Apostle Paul gives us of fruit that can be bigger and better by the kind of Christian character that glorifies God. And he does this in one letter, the book of Romans. So turn to Romans chapter 1. And we're just going to look at three passages here of importance to us on this issue of bearing fruit and bearing better fruit and bearing bigger fruit. Listen to what he says. Because what it also brings up is the different kinds of fruit that we can bear as believers. We talked a little bit about that last week, but not as much because we were going to touch upon it today. So in Romans chapter 1 verse 13, notice what he says. Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, which means I was, I was prevented hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. Now, what he's saying here about, about bearing fruit has to do with winning others to Christ. Oh, I, I purposed to come to you so that I might have some fruit among you also in this, in, in this reaching out and bringing people to Jesus Christ, you see. And then in Romans chapter 6, well, by the way, you know, when, we're, when we witness and, and, and give testimony of, of Christ to others, to win them to Christ, to bring them to the Lord Jesus, it, it, it has a lot to do with our character, what they see in us. Remember what we closed with last time that we were dealing with, you know, uh, our, our, our words are so loud that they can't. Or, or I should say our actions are so loud that they can't, they can't hear our words. And our words have to fit with our actions. Romans chapter 6, verses 22 and 23. But now being made free from sin, he said, and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness. Please underline that because your fruit is to be unto holiness and the end or the goal, everlasting life. And I add verse 23 because of the importance of this statement, for the wages of sin is death. We as believers need to remember this all the time. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so consider then the context of the very fact that bearing fruit is to be done in holiness and obedience. Because that is the contrast to the wages of sin, which is death. What God has given us is that gift of life and eternal life through Jesus Christ for a reason. This is why our lives need to reflect holiness and obedience. And then you turn to Romans chapter 15. So there's the fruit of winning others to Christ and there's a fruit unto holiness and obedience. And then here in Romans 15 verses 25 through 28, listen carefully. I expanded this so you can get the context of what he's saying. He says, but now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints, for it has pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. It has pleased them verily, and their debtors they are. 
For if the Gentiles have, made, have been made partakers of the spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things or material things as it were. When therefore I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, what is the fruit? It is the gift, it is the contribution. It is the offering that is being sent to Jerusalem. When therefore I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I will come by you into Spain. So what he's saying is that this is the fruit of Christian giving. This is the fruit of Christian giving. There is the fruit of winning souls to Christ. There is the fruit unto holiness and obedience. That is to be more fruitful each and every day of our lives as believers. And then there is the fruit of Christian giving. Remember that Paul in some way quotes Jesus probably from his visit with Jesus out in the deserts of Arabia for as many years as he was there with, with the Lord. That he says that Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Well, it is blessed to give than, is more blessed to give than to receive because it is a fruit. And you bear that fruit by giving, and every time you give, you are bearing more fruit unto the glory of God the Father. So it brings us back to that issue of the quantity and the quality of our fruit. It isn't just quantity, it is quality. Because it reflects upon the character of the believer in Jesus Christ. And then may I say that even our praise and our worship that comes from our hearts through our lips is fruit to the glory of God. And, you know, we should consider the quality of our worship unto God. Paul in Hebrews 13 verse 15 says, By him therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God. How often? Continually. By the way, you know what continually means? Continually. Just, just in case you weren't sure. That's 100% sure now. Continually means continually. Okay? So, he says, By him therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. How often do you consider that you want to be a better worshiper next week than you were this week? You ever thought about that? Because if you haven't, there's a problem. I, I, let, let, me, let me make reference to a Christmas song. It's, it, it's not a biblical thing, you know. It's, it's, it's something, but we've, we hear it all the time. The little drummer boy, right? Come, they told me, right? We know, it, we know the song. I don't have to quote it for you. But there's one little line, and it struck me so hard the other day as I'm considering this passage. It was the line that the little drummer boy says, I played my best for him. I played my best for him. Do you ever think that your worship is your best? You see, Maybe today was a, a good day, and you worship with all your heart. I mean, you're not measuring yourself about it, you know, because here we are now studying the Word of God, and that's important. But when we gather together, let's say on Wednesday, and we're going to worship the Lord, are we ready to give your best again? 
Will your best be even better? And I'm not talking about the quality of your voice or, or if you're a musician, the quality of your playing. I'm talking about the offering of your heart. Are you giving your best in worship? You know, I, I've, I've known people that have, have just passed their time for a few minutes while the worship is going on. Because they only come to hear God's word, right? Well, God's word says, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Is that not important? By the way, that's the kind of fruit that you can bear fruit, you can bear more fruit, and you can bear much fruit. So don't worry how you sound to the person in front of you or to the side of you. It's God who knows the richness of the quality of your fruit from your heart. Amen? So, the key to abounding in fruit is abiding in Christ. But before we move on into our text, let's, let's look at, at verses 7 and 8 and touch on something that we didn't consider last time. And it's not that I didn't want to. I did, but we ran out of time. So, I want, I want to make sure that we don't miss this. So, let's look at verses 7 and 8. <clears throat> Where Jesus said, if you abide in me, <coughs> excuse me, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Now, a lot of people like that. Oh, boy. Right? They really like that. But then he says, herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. Now, it is an amazing pledge that Jesus makes to his disciples. He says, ye ask what ye will, and it will be done unto you. Now realize that the guarantee is conditional. The guarantee here is conditional. Because the key to getting what we want is wanting what he wants. That's the condition. You're not all excited about that. What do you mean we can't get what we want? Uh, I got this long list. Right? Y'all are thinking of Santa Claus, folks. No, don't think of Santa Claus right now. You know, he's checking my list. He's checking it twice. No, 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 no. You shall ask what ye will, and it will be done unto you. But the fact of the matter is, if you're abiding in Christ and Christ in you, which will is important? Yours or his? So the key to getting what we want is wanting what he wants. So you see, to have Jesus' words abiding in us, because he says, my words abide in you. Verse 7, right? If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. To have Jesus' words abiding in us means more than just merely memorizing Scripture. It means meditating on 
the word of God. It means contemplating the word of God. It means pondering the word of God. It means considering the word of God diligently until our conscious and mindful natures are filled with God's word. That's what it means. Until they become a vital and vigorous part of us. And what does the word of God do for us? I mean, it does a whole lot. I mean, we, we can make a big, long list, but let me give you three things of what it does. It enlightens our understanding. It enlightens our understanding. When we first came to know Jesus Christ, we didn't know a whole lot about the Word. We'd stumble and mumble ourselves through it sometimes, and we just, well, you know, but, but the Lord, you know, as we prayed, as we studied, as we, uh, as we listened and, and paid attention and, 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 and sought Him out for these things, the more he began to reveal to our hearts. And then, then we would grow and mature in the Lord more and more. So he enlightens our understanding. Secondly, he stimulates our emotions. And that's, that's part of that connection between us and, 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 and how we worship the Lord. You know, the stimulating of our emotions. I mean, you know, you know we're, not, we're not to be dead people in here. And I, and I hate to say it, but I've been, uh, you know, in the ministry for 40 years and you know, all in. And, and the fact of the matter, the fact of the matter is, I've been in some dead churches, man. Wow. Whoo! You know, man, is anybody alive in this place? I've been in churches, man. They got so much going on on stage, but nobody brings a Bible. And they say something, a few things, quote a scripture, and then everybody goes out and drinks coffee. And they think that's church. That's, there's a form of deadness in that. Because the word of God stimulates us. It pokes at us. And it should. Because it wants to keep us alive. And it invigorates our wills. The more I read, the more I want to worship Jesus. The more I read, the more I want to give my life to him. The more I realize there's some things in my life I need to put away and I need to just trust in him. And so a life that abides is a life that abounds. That's what we've been saying. And then in verse 8, there's an approval by God of those who bear much fruit. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciple. That's an approval. But it's interesting to note <clears throat> that the Father was not glorified. The Father was not glorified. Listen carefully to me. The Father was not glorified in the conduct of Jesus' disciples within that hour. Within that hour. I want you to consider a couple of things. Consider that in the next few minutes, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter, James, and John, after being told by Jesus to stay up, to be vigilant, and to pray, they would be sound asleep. Sound asleep. Can you not even wait one hour with me? And then later, Peter would be slashing about with his sword. When the, this whole group of 
Soldiers come to arrest Jesus. And then eventually he goes out in the darkness cursing, swearing, and denying Christ. And the rest of the disciples taking their leave and running away. Why did they do these things? Because you see, even though Jesus spent the better part of three and a half years with them, You still had Peter saying to Jesus when he said, I've got to go to the cross. He says, nobody's going to come and take you. I'm going to protect you. And Jesus would say to him, get thee behind me, Satan. Thomas would have his doubts. And Philip would just say, look, just show us the Father. I'm cool. And Jesus said, I already did. That's all I've been showing you. So, did you expect better from the disciples? Was the Father glorified that night? With the fruit of the disciples? There was no fruit at all. The question is, why did they do these things? Because his word was not abiding in them. Ah, but don't don't get puffed up. Why do we do such things sometimes? Why do we do such things sometimes? Because his word. Not because of him, but because his word is not abiding in us. Remember, his word needs to remain and continue and 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 endure in us. That's what the word means, to abide. Is a dwelling in us where we can receive it and, and know it immediately when we need it. So herein is the need for us then to abide in his word and to let his word dwell and remain in us. Turn, if you will, to Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Colossians 3, verse 16. It says, let the word of Christ dwell. Now, This is a a different Greek word, but it has really the same full extent of the meaning of the the word that we find that Jesus uses for dwell. He says, let the word of Christ dwell, enoikeo is the Greek word here, which means to inhabit, to occupy, and to remain. So let the word of Christ inhabit you, occupy you, remain in you, and dwell in you richly, In all wisdom, and remember the implication of wisdom is that you have the Holy Spirit in you. So in you, uh, let, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. To me, this really puts... This really puts to bed this idea that, you know, what, what, what people need in the church today is entertainment. It's not about entertainment. We, it is about taking God's word in a, in a setting of worship and, 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 and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. There's a, there's a purpose in our worship. It isn't to be entertained. 
It is so that the joy of the Lord may be full in us. So I, I needed to share that from that, that passage there, 7 and 8. We, need, we now need to move away from the analogy of the vine to the secret of abounding that is now shown to be connected with our fellowship with Jesus Christ. So let's look at verses 9 through 12. It says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment. Isn't that a wonderful statement that Jesus makes? He says, this is my commandment. This is the commandment of the Son of God and God the Son. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, at the end of chapter 14, Jesus spoke about peace. Peace, he said, I give you. Or peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Peace I leave with you. Talks about peace. But now he focuses our attention upon love and joy. Love and joy. Those three virtues, peace, love, joy, are the first three virtues of the fruit of the Spirit. We talked about that last time also in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. We don't need to turn there, but you can look it up later. So understand that if you are abiding in Christ, if we are abiding in Christ, this fruit should be evident in our lives. What fruit? The fruit of peace, the fruit of love, and the fruit of joy. Peace I leave with you. Love one another as I have loved you. I give you these things so that your joy may be full. And because we love him, we keep his commandments. And as we keep his commandments, we abide in his love in a deeper way. A few times throughout John's gospel, we find Jesus speaking about the Father's love for him. By the way, go back to verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. you continue in my love. Did you know that most of you do not focus on what he said initially in that verse? What did he say initially? As the Father hath loved me. We kind of skip over that. Well, that's an obvious thing. I mean, it's, it's understood. Father loves his son. <laughs> and we just, we just skip right by it. We are, I mean, we're, we are seemingly emphasizing God's love for the world and, that ch and, and for the church that we oftentimes forget that the Father loves the Son. Isn't that an interesting thought? But the Father shows His love for the Son in many ways. And it is an important thing. For example, John 3.35 for Jesus said, the Father loveth the Son and has given all things into his hand. 
Or in John chapter 5, verse 20, where it says, For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he, shall, he will show him greater works than these, that you may marvel. And that was done after Jesus had healed the, uh, the, the man who was lame for 38 years. He says, The Father loves the Son, shows him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these, that you may marvel. John 10, verse 17. It says, Therefore does my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. And, and you know, if you'll notice this, the, the extent of, 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 of the reason for the Father loving is growing more and more in these examples. Because now he says, therefore does my father love me because I lay down my life. My father loves me because I willingly came to die. Give my life, lay it down, that I might take it again. And then in his high priestly prayer to the father in John 17, there's two verses here. Verse 24 and verse 26. Verse 24 says, Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, his disciples, his followers, not, in, not just the twelve, not just the eleven, but us. He says, Father, I will that they also, whom, they, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Now we see the very extent of the Father's love for his Son. And this is a serious matter because there has been question in theology for years and years and years of whether there is an eternal son. Well, this pretty much dispels that wonder. Jesus dispels it himself. He says, for you have loved me, Father, before the foundation of the world. That's an eternal son, isn't it? And then in verse 26, it says, I have, And I have declared unto thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. Not just his love, but his very person through the power of his Holy Spirit in us. If we are abiding in Christ, then we should have the fullness of joy in our lives. Those who don't abide in God's love through obedience to his word lose that fullness of joy that the Lord has for them in his abiding presence. There, there isn't a more miserable Christian than one who hangs around the borders of disobedience. He doesn't love sin enough to enjoy its pleasures, yet doesn't love Jesus enough to appreciate and delight in his holiness. That's a, that's a kind of a sad state, isn't it? He notices that his rebellion is sinful, but obedience seems unpleasant and even repulsive. He doesn't feel at home in the world, but he remembers too many past associations that consume his time, preventing him from worshiping wholeheartedly with the saints. He is one to be pitied. One to be pitied, and he cannot, and this is the sad thing, and, this, and the thing to be very careful about. He cannot remain undecided forever. 
And the Lord, through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, man, works on us, works on us, works on us because he loves us that much. He works on our hearts. He convicts us. What will turn the tide if it isn't the Holy Spirit in our lives? But to be in that state is painful. And so the Lord Jesus over and over on that night before his crucifixion instills in his disciples the love of God that they and we are to give to others. Love one another as I have loved you. So how did Jesus love? How did Jesus love? Let's look at verse 13 of our text. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. Jesus loved by giving his life for us. Now he is telling his disciples and us <clears throat> that this is the kind of love that we are to love others with. What kind of love is that? It is a sacrificial love. We don't oftentimes understand sacrifice. Sometimes we understand it through a patriotic sense. I hear a lot about you know, how much we appreciate, and I do, and I'm sure many of you do too, because many of us are, are connected uh, to military for, for years and years. We have family that served in all the wars and whatnot. I'm saying we collectively. So in a sense, you know, we have this, we have this appreciation for those who sacrifice their lives for freedom, for liberty, for the flag, for this country. We, we have a, a deep respect for that. But do we really understand sacrifice when it comes to loving one another? And how much of a sacrifice that is? The, the sad thing is that there are so many people today who can even enter into a church and say, you know, I, I, I love people, uh, you know, I... I know that we're to love one another, and I, and, I, and I love people, except for that one over there, and, and that one over here, and one right back over there, you know, row 12, seat 9, right? Where'd that come from? You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he, it was because God so loved the world and I don't see where there is any kind of uh, distinctions made upon the world in the sense of, of uh, delineating that there aren't some people that aren't worthy of, of being saved. None of us, by the way, are worthy of being saved. Think about it that way. Yet Jesus died no, no matter. He died. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That giving was a sacrificial gift from God. He gave his son. This is some of the understanding that we are to, to have about what sacrificial love is. Jesus gave his life. 
It may not cost us our physical lives, but it will cost us something as we minister to others. I think we do a great disservice to our children. And, and, and please forgive me if, if I, you know, if I'm kind of scratching a, a niche that I'm scratching too hard on. But I think sometimes we, you know, we, we pay more attention to our, our kids' schedules than getting them into the, into the place where they can learn about Jesus Christ. Because we seem to sometimes think that there's always time. There's always time for my kids to know who Jesus is. If that were the case, then we wouldn't need Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 10. Where it tells us that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we are to teach these things to our children from the time that they're born to the time that they become adults. It takes sacrifice. It'll cost us something. As we love as Christ Jesus commanded us to love, it'll cost us something. Paul was certainly someone who understood years later what this kind of love would entail. So he would write in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, if there be any, if there, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, and by the way, consolation and comfort are very similar here, uh, really the same word. But if there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, which means that the depths of our hearts are filled with the mercies of God, fulfill ye my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And then he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now that's a transitional verse that leads us into the next thought about what Jesus did in his sacrificial love. I don't include that because I know that you'll read this and have read it before and you read it again. But I use it here because this is what ties Verses 1 through 4 to verses 6 through 11. The fact of the matter is, it applies to us. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. To have the same love, to fulfill our joy, that do nothing through strife or selfish ambition, vain glory, but in lowliness of mind and humility, let each esteem other better than themselves. And even Jesus, when he tells us in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, when he says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus is saying, with that heart, 
That's the mind that you are to have toward one another in expressing this love. That's fellowship with Christ. That's abiding and understanding, abiding and abounding in the fellowship with Christ. But there's another secret of abounding, and that is found in friendship with Christ. And, and in verse 13, we'll, we'll start there again. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do whatsoever I command you. Whoa. There's a condition. You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. These things I command you, that you love one another. Now the Greek word for friend here is the word philos. For, friend is philo, uh, for friends is philos, and it's used in various settings, but, but the meaning really is the same. It's primarily a word that is used as a friend in a king's court. A friend in a king's court is describing the inner circle around an emperor or a king or a sovereign. But it is also used to refer to the best man at a wedding. As John the Baptist says in John 3 verse 29, He that has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him. The friend of the bridegroom, the philos of the bridegroom, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore is fulfilled. The friends of a king or even of a very special bridegroom would be very close to him and, and know many of his secrets. But they would also be subject to him in the case of a king. They would be subject to the king even though they are now brought into the inner circle. He's still the king and have to obey his commands. This means that there would be no conflict between a, being a friend and a servant at the same time. No conflict whatsoever. Abraham would be the best example of this in the Hebrew Scriptures, for he was not only a servant of God, but he was called a friend of God. The fact is that we, we choose, and, I'm, and I just want to kind of set the, the scene here, we choose to be the Lord's servants, don't we? But we humbly receive Jesus' declaration of us as friends. Then we learn, though we didn't choose him, he chose us first. But we still choose him. It's still a choice we make. I don't know how deeply, deeply theological this, this, this song may be. But we used to sing it years and years ago. I have decided to follow Jesus. Then we learn Jesus chose you first. Oh, by the way, Jesus loved you first. You didn't love Jesus first. He loved you first. And he knew you before you were even a, a molecule in your 
mother's womb. How great he loves you. Amazing, isn't it? But there is that, that choice we make to, to be his servants. We choose. We surrender our wills to the Lord Jesus Christ. And just remember this. Jesus is our master. The word Lord is, is the word master. So we have to understand it that way. But he doesn't treat us as servants. That's the thing. He treats us as friends if we do as he commands. And again, Abraham has to be mentioned here because Abraham was God's friend because he obeyed God. That's something you learn in Abraham's life as well as in the book of Hebrews, the Hall of Faith. But take an example from Abraham's nephew Lot, as Peter describes in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6-8. through 8. Where he describes the situation about turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly. And deliver just Lot. Now, please understand in, in, in the Old English, this does not mean he just delivered Lot, that's all. He, he just delivered Lot. No, no, he delivered just Lot. He was a just man. He was a righteous man. He delivered just Lot, vexed, though, as he was with the filthy conversation of the wicked. He chose to live in Sodom. Big problem. <laughs> Why did he choose Sodom? Because it was so green and so pretty. You know, Abraham said, look, if you go take your flocks and everybody... You know, if you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the west, I'll go to the east. You know, whatever. Whatever you choose, you go that way, and I'll go the other way. Okay, and then we can be at peace. So Lot looked, and he saw this nice green land out there. He said, oh, I'm going to go this way. But then he became vexed. Deeply, deeply. Pained and struggled over what he was living amongst. It says, for that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. And how many people are being vexed day by day by putting their heads and their eyes and their minds and their thoughts into things that we see in the world, in the, in the internet or in the, uh, you know, on TV and stuff, you know, the, the, the pornographic and the, just the, the ungodly things that are out there. And we're trying to be just and righteous on a daily basis. Wow. We know that, that that situation and that problem exists in the church. So, so listen, listen to what James says in James chapter 4. And I need you to remember that James is writing to the church. Not to the world. He's writing to the church. People in the body of Christ. He says in James 4 verses 1 through 4. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts? That war in your members, you lust and have not, you kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Man, who wants to be in that church, man? <laughs> Whatever church that was, man. We got murderers here. Yeah, there are murderers. There. Hope there are no murderers here today.
You know, we try to kill with our words, by the way, remember? We, we, we can try to kill in a lot of different ways. You lust, you have not. You kill, you desire to have, get out, obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss, that you may consume it upon your lusts. You adulterers and adulteresses, he says, Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Boy, Lot learned that lesson. Friendship with the world, or friendship of the world, is enmity with God, hostility with God. And listen to this, whosoever therefore would be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. I don't want you to be the friend of the world, I want you to be the friend of God. You know what, what happens to us? We become the enemy of the world. We're going to learn that next, next week. We're going to become the enemy of the world. Because we love Jesus Christ. Because we follow after Jesus. But we'll get to that. And we'll come back to verse 16 as well. But there is so much there to say about the content of that verse. I want to leave you with two things. I want to leave you with one verse and one, one question. The verse is Psalm 25, verse 14, because it says the secret of the Lord it was, is with them that fear him. And he will show them his covenant. And I bring that up because of this issue of, of God calling us friends. He brings us into his inner circle because we have believed and trusted in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Brings us into his inner circle. And he shares, us the, shares with us the things that the world can't understand. In many cases, the world doesn't want to understand, doesn't want to know, doesn't, want, doesn't care about. But we care about it. And so the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. We fear the Lord, we reverence the Lord, we worship the Lord with that heart of, of, of respect. And therefore, he shows us his covenant. He shows us his word. Be thankful. Though you are a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, be thankful that he doesn't treat you as a, ser a servant, he treats you as a friend. And the question that I have to ask you is this. Is there a greater love than Jesus' love for us? Is there a greater love than Jesus' love for us? Does anyone love you more than Jesus loves you? I don't think so. Well, I know so. I know that there isn't. There's no greater love. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. And what was his command in verse 17? These things I command you that you love one another.